0: You're listening to Yale Radio WIBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. Today on our show, I'm talking with Greg Slick. Greg, thanks so much for being with me today. Thank you for inviting me. Greg, we're talking on September 7th in 2021. You're um, in Beacon, New York. Uh, just in terms of uh, the neighborhood, how are, are things there? We're in this kind of um, mid post-mid next pandemic stage or something
1: right uh yeah things are kind of interesting here um in in smack in the middle of the pandemic beacon was becoming kind of a boom town you know all these people were coming up from the city and opening businesses and um you know like new art spaces were being proposed and you know, other art spaces were opening uh, farther north. So it's been very busy here.
0: Ah, that's interesting. So as part of the, and, and just correct me if I'm wrong, but the exodus from cities, uh, Beacon was in some ways the beneficiary of that. And, uh, I mean, there already is cultural institutions and galleries in Beacon that attracted more of that to some degree and and aided yeah. its kind of car, cultural flourishing.
1: Yeah, well, you know, um, since, um, I guess it was 2003 when uh, Dia Beacon opened, there was a kind of um, a slow, sort of a delayed Bilbao effect. And, you know, um, real estate prices began to go up and more artists, there were already a few artists here, but more artists started to move here. And things were still a bit affordable, but you know that disappeared. The affordability part of it disappeared pretty quickly. And then uh, when we had the uh, recession, then you know everything was at rock bottom, and a lot of businesses tanked. And then um, more artists started to show up again. So it's been sort of a weird roller coaster ride. Um, but the the net effect has been that. Um, a lot of Brooklyn has moved to Beacon. Huh.
0: So, 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 and what does that meant for the artist community? Because there's there's all of that, but that's a changed community, isn't
1: it? Well, I think that um, it has enriched the artist community, and the food is better. The food is better. <laughs> the food is better, indeed. <laughs> you know, there's just more at stake. You know, I mean, the Hudson Valley is just so, you know, competitive and, you know, uh, at at the very least in in a culinary aspect because of the, um, you know, the CIA uh, north of us in Hyde Park. And, you know, there's just a lot at stake in terms of how well, you know, one can feed people. And and I think now uh, art tourism has become, has demonstrated that uh, it's a thing. And it, you know, it really draws people to a community. Uh, but having said all that, you know, that there's always been artists in, in the area from, like, decades ago. And it's always been a place for artists to come and and work and sort of, you know, get away from the madding crowd of the city. Right, right. It's, yeah, it's true. Um, but interesting, and kind a of
0: pandemic uh, sprinkle there too as as it kind of affects all these communities and and
1: yeah.
0: what are you working on right now what what's what's happening in your studio or, or perhaps we should talk about what's what's happened in the past year and, and whether yeah. that's affected your practice
1: well uh in the past year um you know a, a lot has happened actually um uh just on a, on a personal, very personal note, uh, right in the middle of the pandemic, I had eye surgery. So I had to uh, learn how to reenter the studio. And I had to learn how to work with monocular vision, uh, which was very challenging. And I figured out lots of workarounds. Um, the thing is that my work doesn't rely that much on perspective i do have some you know illusionistic features in in the work but you know it's 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 flat i'm very much about flatness Uh, it's hard abstraction uh so um uh, working with one eye in in some ways was was okay um, that's so that's interesting the, the, right so that, that
0: that is a very different take on your practice though right because that's yeah, e- yeah. there's a depth perception that's not there
1: or or is that what happens depth depth perception is a very strange thing uh, with monocular vision because i'm able to drive but so the little vision that i have in one eye right now uh uh, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the neuroplasticity of the brain, but I'm able to have a an experience of depth perception. Uh, when it's really up close, you know, don't ask me to pour you a drink because that might not go very well. But yet, I'm able to, you know, and as I said, you know, I do a heart of abstraction, so I'm able to tape out a shape and, you know, and seal it and paint it in and do all of the you know, my whole bag of tricks. In fact, before I had eye surgery, my work tended to be somewhat monochromatic, and now it's changed a bit in that I've got a, a broader, you know, palette. Um, I think in some ways because of the, the, my limitations in vision, I wanted to glut myself with color and, glut and, and challenge myself with more complexity of shapes so interesting so so that's what
0: happened throughout that the the pandemic that's that's yeah, part of yeah. the kind of formal adventure you you were on, which is you know uh retraining your 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 eyes to some extent right that's it.
1: yes indeed, but other than that the the content the backstory of my work uh, has remained the same um just um sort of an overarching theme in my work is that i'm very interested in the interface of art, archaeology, and anthropology, and uh, looking at, you know, different ways that I can overlay some artifacts of prehistoric culture, as well as some tropes and conventions of archaeological process onto contemporary art. So, it's just a fancy way of saying that you know I'm I'm working with with abstract shapes that reference these things. So let's um, talk about
0: one of those and and, and how that works. Um, uh, would that be? I mean, I'm looking at some images of yours which could be included in the interview but the lives of others. That was from 2020. We could talk about that one in terms of archaeology and what you're talking about, or or something newer. Cueva Ventada sure. um, that that. Uh, which one do you want to talk about in terms of how it does sure, reference yeah. just those things you were saying or, or old materiality so is also a very interesting one
1: yeah let's talk about old materiality because that really um you know uh demonstrates certain uh aspects of the way. It, it kind of encompasses a lot of stuff that i've been working on so um okay old materiality so the 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 thought for that Uh, came from uh, a book that I was reading recently, uh, Hyper Objects, by uh, the philosopher Timothy Morton. And um, in that book, he talks about, he he says this this crazy thing that I just, it stopped me in my tracks. He said, um, form is memory. And then he, he characterized that by saying that um, when you walk down the streets of, of London, for example, and you're looking at the shape of the street itself, the course that it takes, the shapes of the buildings, you know, the patina of age. He, um, uh, in terms of, like, the patina of age, he talked about, you know, Ruskin and, you know, the uh, the yellow stain of time and how things acquire, you know, a certain patina. And it he, he began to... Uh, Morton, you know, delves into the whole idea of the the politics of of building, and how things take shape because of certain historical events and because of certain economic pressures, and uh, other you know things that just just happen throughout the life of a city or a landscape or what have you. So I really got to thinking about the politics of monumentality, which is really, monumentality is really something that's key to this new body of work, uh, and, um, you know, uh, uh, a a painting like Old Materiality is kind of like a tongue-in-cheek way of saying um, that our species' fascination with monumentality goes, of course, way back to the Neolithic period. Uh, and this is one of my you know pet obsessions this fifteen hundred year at least in in Britain and in the in Ireland this fifteen hundred year period that defines uh, not only the agricultural revolution but also the uh, underpinnings of uh, civic culture. So suddenly you know we're we're not um, foragers, hunter-gatherers, living in temporary shelters, but we're making villages. You know, we're building villages, monuments, um, using uh, megalithic uh, techniques to build things that last. You know, these enormous structures that last till this day. So the 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 that early fascination with monuments has become really key in this new body of work. Why, as a species, did we have to build these monuments? And then how are we linked in time? How is the present linked to the past in that respect? So I'm kind of developing a thesis around this. I don't know, I mean, you look at one of these paintings and you may or may not see that. Uh, It may not be explicit, but the backstory is about monumentality. And, uh, you know, in 4000 B.C. or 3000 B.C., when these, you know, the megalithic structures were being fashioned, uh, these structures were part of the theory is that um, in the archaeological community is that they were part of a ritual landscape that all of these structures related to each other. And this has been amply demonstrated in the archaeological records. So, you know, you can go to sites like Avebury or up to you know to the Orkney Islands or the, the Brunaboyne um you know uh, ritual complex um, in Ireland. It's huge
0: so stone, the, uh, huge stone monuments. I mean like like Stonehenge yeah. too of course is yeah.
1: Absolutely, mm. yeah. And so all of these monuments would actually relate to each other Uh, not only uh, spatially but also temporally because some of the monuments might have been older. So sometimes older monuments were embellished or built upon or they they were just there and the relationships were not just with the monuments themselves but also with natural features in the landscape. So my takeaway is that here is our species uh, attempting to tame the wild by creating these monuments, but at the same time trying to, um, the theory is trying to um, establish and support their idea of a cosmology and man's you know position within that, but also integrating that with nature so that whatever they made wasn't exactly... You know, sticking out like a sore thumb from the landscape. It was all integrated. Now, fast forward. You know, for uh, six thousand years, and to the beginning, uh, let's say, of the twentieth century and contemporary, you know, modern monumentality, and how this whole concept within the psyche of our species has been twisted, and now the monuments are no longer being made to our ancestors or to an idea of cosmology. They're simply being made to the idea of capital. The greater good of capital. <laughs> and how much more capital can we accumulate and how higher how much higher can we is it like
0: course, skyscrapers? Like what what is the what is the manifestation of that?
1: Yes, yeah, some some thinking of yeah, I'm thinking primarily of skyscrapers. Um and um, with no regard, of course, uh, to uh, the landscape. Uh, so this is, this is very interesting how we are linked to the past uh, with, with this very interesting um, you know, concept of monumentality. And, uh, and, and it's even been demonstrated in the late 20th century in the architectural style of brutalism. Uh, you know some of these young uh you know brash young architects in the fifties and sixties were uh you know trying to uh create a style that in some ways was very consciously um referencing uh neolithic monuments, at least in, right. in the look of them you know sure in brutalist work that makes sense yeah yeah right yeah yeah so i'm i 'm kind of You know, I kind of, uh, I'm kind of into brutalist, there's a much maligned style of brutalist architectures. I mean, there's bad brutalism and then there's really good brutalism, but that's all just a matter of taste.
0: So Uh, when we look at the painting, absolutely. Um, But there's a lot of things like that I like. And here in in New Haven, where I am at the moment, there's a lot of uh, really interesting structures, actually, brutalist structures, but, um, but old materiality. So we're talking about this, you know this, this history of of monumentalities. You're saying it in that in that yeah. painting, um, yeah. which, so which people can unpack- see at your website or in this interview. That looks like it looks like yeah. I mean, if you want to talk more about that, there's, now I'm now I'm seeing more in there. Now I'm seeing everything from the the kind of depth between these two. To also, it looks like it's it's hard to see whether things are building up or coming down.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that you know the, the building up or coming down thing. That's actually a function of the way that I physically paint these things, which is actually from the top down, so that I can get that overlap of shapes. You start at um, the top. top. Right, 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 right. You're yeah, starting at yeah. the top, yeah. Uh, I am starting at the top and then building the shapes, except for the big gesture. That comes first. Uh, uh, so this big swooshy, it's almost like a sumi, a sumi ink style. It's actually acrylic, it's not ink. I did study Chinese painting and calligraphy with a master mm-hmm. about twenty years ago. But um So that
0: big I, swoosh, right, that big swoosh comes first. Yeah. That's at the bottom, which which the, the others look almost geometric, you're saying in, in contrast. Yeah. Look more like that, uh, yeah. yeah.
1: I start with the swoosh. It's for me the swoosh is um it's kind of like um potential potential slash slash elastic energy so it's something that lies uh beneath the stones beneath the earth it's the potential um that we can tap into you know you could call it prana or chi um and i think that uh that life that That power uh, can uh, underlie uh, some of these monuments, or if not all of them. Um, I like just from an aesthetic uh, viewpoint, I like the way that this gesture uh, crashes or juxtaposes with the hard edge aspect of the painting. So, you know, you've got these things that are kind of like stones coming down on it, surrounding it, uh, embracing it. Uh, and there are also patterns and the patterns themselves have a story. Um, I am, uh, very interested in the, uh, conventions of archaeological, uh, drawing. Uh, drawing is which i have learned i mean i've just sort of become like a, an amateur archaeo nerd in the past mm-hmm. you know 10 years or so and uh you know photography is interesting but, but the most probably the most important you know one of the most important ways for archaeologists to document work is to actually draw stuff in mm-hmm. a you know a, at a site and um, some of the conventions of that would be, you know, like certain stones. Like if a stone is is missing, or it's fallen, or it's half up, or whatever, you might use some hash marks. So there are all of these, you know, like um, like key type, um, you know, like a, a legend or a key on a on a schema. You would have different patterns that would come into play. So I try to use those patterns in my paintings. Um, and then the other type of patterning I, um, incorporate is, is way crazier. Uh, so, right. um, right. If we're
0: still talking about is, that, 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 same painting, um,
1: yeah. you know,
0: which you can, what they can see here in this interview, old materiality, right. The patterns are, are, are incredibly varied. We're talking everything from monochromatic to, to it look like, um, um, you know, kind of gradiated backgrounds and all kinds
1: of things yeah yeah so my other obsession with pattern um was engendered by um a theory that i came across a few years ago in in a book of irish archaeology and then i followed up um i actually discussed this with an archaeologist in scotland and she put me onto um, a couple of books and she said you've got to read these greg because this is this guy, David Lewis Williams, he's he's sort of just nailed this whole thesis on on these kinds of patterns in Neolithic art. Uh, so basically, the okay. So the backstory is that um, uh, there's a lot of Neolithic art that that, that has uh, these geometric patterns. So there's like hash marks, parallel lines, scatters of dots, uh, zigzags, chevrons. Uh, uh, cup mark, these U-shaped marks, and um, they're pretty consistent, and you'll just find them, you know, in the archaeological record in, in Ireland, and in the British Isles, and you might find them in, you know, uh, Scandinavia, France, Spain, Malta. So the whole, you know, Atlantic corridor of uh, Neolithic, uh, megalith, you know, monumental building uh, they're all there and it's like this weird, you know, uh, almost like a common language. So um, with uh, the archaeologist and anthropologist the David Lewis Williams, uh, he has this thesis that um, this lexicon, this brief lexicon of Neolithic patterns equates one for one with entoptic, Um, patterns or hallucinations that we might see. So if you were in a clinical um, environment, if you were induced to hallucinate with any number of things, like um, a psychoactive compound, um, audio driving, you know, like drums or something in in a kind of a ritual context, um, you know, uh, sensory deprivation... This kind of thing, uh, or if you were to have a an optical migraine, which I've had, uh, you will see a any number of these patterns, and they are identical to the patterns that have been uh, uh, carved into these stones. Uh, six thousand. And those are
0: patterns that are produced somehow, like by the optic nerve. that are happening inside your,
1: your your your
0: being generated
1: by the eye without seeing anything. Exactly. Exactly. They only exist within your eye. So right. um, there's this there's theory that um, uh, taking it one step further, there's a theory that in the Neolithic period, you know, uh, some of these, most of these communities, if not all, would have been uh, uh, shamanistic communities. Shamans would have um, ingested uh, perhaps uh, psychological compounds or they might have, you know, gone into a... a um, uh, an altered state of consciousness through different means uh, uh, within, you know, the confines of a, um, a, uh, uh, a passage tomb or a dolmen, you know, any, any of like the monumental sites or uh, right. in nature, for example. And then they would have seen these patterns, and then these patterns, uh, you know, depending on the culture, would have had ritual and, uh, you know, spiritual meaning. So that's why we find these all over the place. That's the theory. I find this really fascinating because it links us in time to these people who were physiologically. We know, you know, from the archaeological record, or, uh, depositional, you know, uh, and fee funerary records that they were physiologically identical to us. They were modern, you know, uh, humans. And uh, then neurologically, they would have been, you know, uh, you know, susceptible to, to the same stimuli and the same effects. So uh, this is a really interesting thing. It, it links us, you know, in time. Uh, you know, if if you fast forward more to like the 19th century or 20th century, where will we have more, uh, you know, ethnographic data? Uh, for traditional cultures, you know you'll find that, yeah, well, in shamanistic societies, yeah, you know this is the, these um, these kinds of experiences are you know part of the ritual life, you know to see these patterns, they have a meaning, you know, and uh, you know they uh, enrich the community and then they help the the shaman uh, to uh, you know intercede for the community. Uh, with this spirit world, with the other world. So uh, anyway, that's kind of a long-winded way to say yes. Yeah, it's okay. That's interesting. Very pretty cool.
0: It is, but that's been the research this past year. That's that's. I mean, we're talking about of course materiality as well as the uh, the other recent works that, that fit that. Um, and then and lastly, then when when I look at that that piece materiality though. I'm seeing it on on a computer screen and this kind of loops back to the beginning of our conversation talking about depth perception and 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 your eye Uh, there's kind of layers of colors and forms in here and though I can't see exactly what's happening on the screen it looks like some things come forward and some things go back Um, yet there's a layering there's 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 that you know the the, all the clues to depth perception but it also looks like some things are coming forward or, or that should be back or, or are they? Because that's kind of hard to translate if I'm not looking at them in front of me.
1: Yeah, I'm very I'm very fond of creating those spatial ambiguities. I think they're really important for, you know, just um You mean when
0: something's coming forward or not, or whether whether they're going up or yeah. built up or built down kind of thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that for the viewer, you know, it's really interesting to engage with a, a a painting that way. You know, I I feel that um you know, without sounding too too broad, um that um art is a um it's a social act and that it's not, you know, fully um that the, the, the work of art you know or whatever you know the image you know in the studio it's not fully realized as art until it leaves the studio and then it engages with the gaze of the viewer that alchemy really fully realizes it as art mm. um so i don't know you know call me crazy but i think that it's it, it's kind of an interesting idea you know the whole idea of of you know it being a social act and mm-hmm. you know and it's not totally outlandish to look at it that way you know i mean if you look at again you know going way back into our our ancient history the idea of image making you know probably started out very much as a social act you know of, mm-hmm. of people even a community coming together and you know painting um, murals on the wall. So now we're talking like, you know, 30,000 years ago in the upper Paleolithic period, uh, quite far removed from Neolithic, but, um, hmm. you know, the, the whole idea of image making as being something integral to who we are as a species, um, I think that the, the community aspect of that cannot be, um, you know, forgotten. It can't, it can't be overlooked. It
0: can't be overlooked, and or is it not overlooked? I mean, do do you think it is overlooked, or does it is it still serving that purpose? I mean, I know it's very different, but the the work you're saying I, is still serving that purpose.
1: Yeah, I think that um, I I try to you know in a small way serve that purpose. I mean, uh, you, you know, there are. I mean, you know, obviously there's community I mean, initiatives where, you know, you have a group of people working on a mural, for example, um, you know, or something that is a uh, a total like organic, you know, collaboration between artists, or artists and students or, you know, or people who just like walk into, a, you know, a public space and can interact with art. And I think that's wonderful, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, in in my case, yeah, I mean, I'm sort of like making the work in isolation, and then I present it in, you know, an art space. Uh, so it's it's more of a you know, it's like here it is, you know. And if you happen to walk into the gallery, you'll you know experience that. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, you know, even even in that in in that very you know controlled and perhaps slightly elitist. Uh, you know, environment of, of, of a gallery or something. Uh, still, it is a, it, it is a social act, and it's even an act of generosity, like on the part of the the audience, the viewer coming in and um, you know, giving her time to come in and look at the work and think about it, and and it's it's an act of generosity on the part of the institution or gallery. To say, hey, you know, we're going to show this work. We're going to, you know, okay. keep the lights on and and pay the rent and and have this work in our space.
0: And keep the conversation going, in a sense, and the exchange yeah. going. Yeah,
1: that, the, yeah, the dialogue's really, you know,
0: really key. Greg, um, thanks for sharing your work in in, in, in this. This time, I I want to ask you one more question about what you're reading at the moment. What's what's on your on your book table?
1: Okay. Well, uh, I I usually usually have a few books going at the same time, and um, so right now I am reading uh, *Sapiens* by Yuval Noah Harari, and I'm also kind of rereading. Uh, this book, uh, it's like this really great textbook uh, called uh, The Neolithic of Britain and Ireland by Vicky Cummings. Uh, it's just such a wonderful, you know, it's not a very long book, but um, maybe about, I don't know, two hundred and so pages, but it just breaks down, you know, everything that I was just talking about in terms of the archaeological record in that 1,500-year period. It's just such a straightforward, you know clearly written book. I, I love it and I'm just kinda of rereading it. Sounds exciting and thanks for thanks for that. Greg, I want to wish you well with your
0: your work in your studio and thank you so much for talking with me today.
1: Thank you for having me. It was such a pleasure.
0: You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators and more.